This is episode 100 of the Creative Giant Show. I'm Charlie Gilkey. Thanks for tuning in today. The tables are turned in this episode as Andrea Lee puts me in the spotlight. The questioner becomes the questioned. This one's coming right after I've started sharing more of my thoughts on race, identity, equality, and justice, so a good bit of the conversation focuses on how we might show up as our full selves in our work. If you find yourself at a loss for how to engage with the world while still doing your work, you might find some useful ideas in here. And yes, it's really weird to create the intro for your own interview. I'm just saying, we live in interesting times. Ready? Let's do this. Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. If you're struggling to keep up with processing your email, SaneBox might be just the tool you need. It has saved me hours of time each month, and the amount of peace of mind I get from it is priceless. SaneBox sorts through your email and moves all of the trivial stuff into a different folder, so the only messages in your inbox are the ones you actually want to see. Aside from removing all of the junk so you can focus on the messages that matter, there's this great feature called the black hole. Move an email into that folder and you'll never hear from the sender again. One and done. Just how we like it. Because email can be such a bear and keep you from finishing the stuff that matters, we worked out a great deal for our listeners. Visit sanebox.com forward slash giant and they'll throw in an extra $25 credit on top of the two-week free trial. You don't have to enter the credit card information unless you decide to buy, so there's really nothing to lose. Again, that's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com forward slash giant. Hello, Creative Giants. I'm going to introduce you to the interviewer for today. Andrea J. Lee is founder of Thought Partners International, which does business online under the identity Wealthy Thought Leader University. It's an internationally known company that has helped thousands of entrepreneurs upturn the status quo. Through coaching, they learn to prove their original business concepts, design offerings that break new ground, and sell in lucrative ways that feel good. Alongside the coaching team at Wealthy Thought Leader University, Andrea has taught breakthrough thinking to thousands of entrepreneurial leaders from the startup phase through six, seven, and eight-figure incomes. At least, that's what Andrea was up to until April 30th, 2016. Over the last few years, her work has expanded in scope from business topics to more universal topics on communication, growth, and creativity. Thus, it makes her a particularly good person to ask some of the questions that we're going to be covering on this interview. She joined us for episode 91, and after we recorded and and turned the show off, um, and aside from that conversation, turned into her volunteering to do this interview. Andrea, thanks so much for taking the time out of your schedule to do this reverse podcast interview thing. This, this came up as a um, sort of one of those asides to our last conversation. I appreciate you doing it. You are so welcome. It's always fun to kind of turn the tables and lovingly do that, you know, x-ray conversation thing that you do for so many other people. So I hope to do this conversation justice. <laughs> so to start... The thing I would observe about you objectively is that you combine things 
like a master, you know, it's like the ultimate in peanut butter cup <laughs> or turducken, you know, that weird food with the turkey and the duck and the chicken inside each other. It's a, that's, that's how I think of you. And I really admire how you're able to hold topics clearly distinctly and yet allow them to blend. So the first question I have for you is around this concept of being a creative giant. Um, say a little bit about that for me, if you would. What, what does it mean to be a creative giant in the times that we're in? So what it means to be a creative giant in the times that we're in, um, you know, this is a really interesting conversation right now in time as, as I've started to explore new areas and new dimensions of conversations that I've previously withheld. And one of the things about being a creative giant in the times that we're in is actively expressing parts of yourself that society and people around you might want to sort of carve off those, those edges that, that make you you. You know, so you might be a um, doctor who, uh, who studied a lot of engineering and you might ha- bring in engineering into your, into your practice and people are like, dude, that's weird. Like, like can't you just be a doctor? But you're like, no, this is a part of who I am. This is a part of way of seeing the world. And that's one really important aspect of being a creative giant. Is, and it's not, to be careful here, it's, it's not making that a sense of rebellion. Because sometimes, and I, I'm sure you've seen this too, Andrea, sometimes we so want to express ourselves that we kind of become our own rebel and sort of like fight to, fight to push our, our ourselves and make sure people know who we are. But it's a much more graceful, elegant way of saying, of just weaving that into the way that you are in the world and the conversations that you're having. And I think that's one important piece. Um, And I think the other really important piece about being a creative giant in the times that we're in is um, stepping into that void of, you're not sure how things are going to work out. You're not sure where things are going to go. You're not sure if um, you're really the right person in doing it, but seeing that um, whether it's your creative project or whether it's your business or whether it's something that's happening in the world saying that, you know what, I, it's, it's on me to make a change happen, right? That sense of personal responsibility and not just thinking about it and talking about it, but actively doing something as imperfect as that may be, but as beautiful as that may be. And I think those two elements are just really that multidimensional expression and second, the willingness and the courage to take principled action without knowing where it's going to go, without being able to tell somebody where that's going to end up in however long. I, th- I think that's, that's the challenging in our time. And, and the reason I put that last one is it's so easy with everything going on to kind of stay in your lane and to just do what you do, right? Um, and, and stay inside of that comfortable box that you've made for yourself. Um, and stepping outside of that and mm-hmm. doing something different. That's, that's the challenge, but I think that's also who, what makes us creative giants. Mm-hmm. Especially the giant part, especially when that box that you are mentioning is not only of your own creation, but it's so, it can feel like it's society's creation. Um, so it isn't just a paper box. It's like this reinforced iron box <laughs> that kind of ebbs and flows with your attempts to break out of it. I'm curious, if, what would you be willing to share of your own internal processes to come up to the edge of that moment of expressing something into that unknown of, I have no idea where this is going to go. I have no idea if it's going to create something. What, 
what what happens for Charlie internally to make it possible for you to say write some of these more recent really cool pieces in social media that you've been doing? For me, I think it always comes down to, am I doing more meta work by not doing this than if I just did it? Meaning, am I doing more thinking about it and feeling about it and sort of inhibiting my conversations about it than if I just said, Mm -hmm. you know what, let's just do it. Let's just see what it is. So if I have an essay in my head or something like that, and I've I've had plenty of these long enough that, that they've been sort of there. Like I have plenty of stuff that I've written that I haven't shared, but there comes a point where you recognize you've been thinking about something for four days, but you haven't actually done something with it. That's more emotionally exhausting. That's more cognitively exhausting than if you just put it out there and, and did it. And so I think that's one of the, one of my own processes is I recognize when I've gotten, when I've gotten to that point. Um, And then there's the other Similar thing, and I talk a lot about creative constipation, right? Mm-hmm. Where when you get so many different things going on that you really just can't think and you can't see clearly until you get it out of you. And so I notice that, that when I'm creatively constipated, I know myself that it's time to find something that, that I haven't um, synthesized or combined or written about and, and get it out there just so that I can start thinking clearly about something else. So those two things are really what what drive a lot of this and um when it comes to some of the more recent stuff it's just um seeing that yeah i had reached that point to where my internal frustrations and internal sort of work that i was doing was more than if i just said all right let's do this let's see where this is going to go and so what's happened i mean that's there's there's a breathtaking element to seeing you and anybody else you know, whether they call themselves a creative giant or not, you know, really walking out in faith onto that rope of really don't know, but I don't want to be creatively constipated and exhausted holding this inside me. I'm just going to take principled action. As you've been writing some of these things under, you know, the hashtag Black Lives Matter, you you said some, uh, I, I would say things that are crossing the sound barrier, you know, really just... Uh, stuff that feels very fresh within the context of the, the discourse. Um, what's happened as you have taken those steps and expressed those things, actively expressed those parts of yourself that you maybe haven't done before? Happened internally or externally? Either, both. Um, so external is easier, so I'll start there. Um, externally... A lot of people have said, have, have expressed appreciation for what I'm doing um, in the sense that this conversation about race and identity and black lives matter and oppression and systemic racism and privilege, these are all very woolly topics. And we've gotten to a point in um, discourse or it, we've gotten a point in a conversation where we can't actually have discourse about the meaning that we can't disagree with you. We can't show anything but silence or approval, right? It's like, if I agree with you, then I get, I can like it and share it. If I disagree with you, or I'm not sure if I agree with you, I just have to be silent. And that is just an intellectually stifling climate. That is socially stifling climate. That is an emotionally stifling climate to live in. And we wonder why we're not getting anywhere. Well, I mean, that's not true. We are getting places, but we wonder why we still have some of the issues. And so most of what I've been trying to do And without changing the way other people approach it, without saying other people should do it, something else is saying, look, for me and the people that I want to be in, in 
positive interdependence with, mm-hmm. let's have those conversations. Um, you, you don't have to do all the reading. You don't have to hedge around everything. We can just show up as people and mm-hmm. have these conversations. And a lot of people have f- felt um, really liberated by that idea that they, they can just talk and they can ask questions and they can disagree with me and they can um, do all those types of things. And so it's been a lot of gratitude and a lot of um, people I'm having conversations with people who've not been able to talk about this stuff. And um, it may not be millions of conversations, but there's scores of conversations and that scores of people who had been bottlenecked and, and constipated. They're now talking about this with someone they know, talking about it with their family, starting to think in terms of, of ways of, of um, moving the ball forward. And so that's all been beautiful and that's all been good. And that's, um, it seems like every time I, I start wanting to crawl back in, into my shell and turtle up again, right? Someone will poke out and say, thank you for something like that. I'm like, okay, that's why I'm out here mm-hmm. uh, doing this. Um, internally, it's caused um, a lot of emotional turbulence because um, much like during your episode, Andrew, it's like, I'm not sure how I'm going to integrate all of this stuff or what that integration looks like mm-hmm. um, because I don't want this heavy cultural commentary, social change piece of, of it to be the forward conversation, right? Uh, because I still really do care about productivity and strategy and entrepreneurship and economic development. Um, and in the background, underneath all of my work has always been this very much this social change element, right? Um, not just around race and identity, but around um, economic prosperity for women and things like that. So now it's just a forefront conversation. And that's been challenging because there have been some times where like, I haven't wanted to sit down and write about checking email, right? And strategies for checking email, right? I haven't wanted to sit down and and write about sales pages or um, creative burnout or anything like that because um, my heart and mind has been in a different space. Um, and what's been reflected back to me in so many different ways though, is that so many other people's hearts and minds are in that space and they're having the same challenges. And so in some ways, Andrew, it reminds me of a quote that, um, and I'm going to butcher it and forget who said it. So, (laughs) but it's impossible to light the way for others without lighting your own path as well. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, um, a lot of turbulence, though. A lot of a lot of turbulence, especially as, um, in some ways, it's it's like coming out with alternative sexual preferences, right? Um, because it the, the challenge is when we go into talking about race and identity and things like that is that multidimensionality that, that I mentioned earlier gets constrained to that's who you are. You're that one piece, and that that becomes the primary lens by which people understand you. Um, and so that's the challenging piece is how do I, how do I walk that tension between being fully expressed, but having a particular perspective that's useful for this particular conversation. It, it's interesting. One of the things that you wrote about that I found to be particularly helpful and maybe relevant to this point you're making. Um, and by the responses on your social media, I, it feels like you touched a nerve um, in, in a multidimensional way. And that is about how to have discourse. What are the models for discourse? Because 
you know, uh, you know, agree with me or not, Charlie here, that's, we know that's not the point because it is about discourse here on this podcast, but um, Black Lives Matter, whatever the hashtag is, you know, the many different topics that are leading our world right now. Um, to me, frankly, it's not those issues. It's the dialogue and the discourse and the aliveness around them. So it's process mm-hmm. versus the topic. And when you posted that, I wondered whether you yourself were landing on something that felt more integrated for you, more congruent with productive flourishing or, you know, other things like that. What, what say you to that? Yeah. Um, the, we know as coaches, right. Mm-hmm. That whenever our clients come to us with a very clear either or scenario that they have tied themselves in a knot and it's always to find the end or always to find alternative possibilities. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time in this broader conversation around black lives matter, blue lives matter, white, black, right. Rich, poor, whatever it is, we create these same either or dichotomies, right. That I could be a one percenter or I can be a 99 percenter, but I can't have the perspectives of both, or there can't be perspectives from both that, that create this new harmony. Right. And so what I'm most frustrated by is somehow we've gotten ourselves into this conversation to where, we are stuck in this polarity. We are stuck in this. Um, I can have one position. So I'm either for your position, I'm silent, or I'm against your position, right? And that is a really challenging space to be in because we have a lot of, say, would-be allies that don't know where they sit. They just don't know where they are. They know some things are wrong, but they know these other things are wrong, and there's no one talking to them, and so there's this force to be silent. Because if they say something, they get lynched in different ways. And I recognize even using the word lynch is going to trigger people because it has a historical thing, but they get beat up in a lot of different ways. And if they stay silent, they get beat up for staying silent, right? And it's a no-win position. And I think that's really what I'm trying to... um, I've been doing it in entrepreneurship and creativity and things for long is helping people out of these no-win positions that we create create for, for ourselves but I'm seeing that the, the communication paradigms that we have um, are in themselves um, stifling as well. So, for instance, I went to a I went to a, a event this last week that was about inclus- inclusion and diversity and justice, and um, there were some hurts that came up, hmm. and a response to the hurts was, "Well, hurt people hurt people." Right? Beautiful line. The only thing is that in my mind, what I wanted to say is yes, and that's an explanation. That's not a justification for two different things, right? Just because somebody is hurt doesn't give them the, the warrant or doesn't mean that we should hold them any less accountable for the hurts they cause to other people. That's an explanation, not a justification. There's no room in that public conversation about that, right? Uh, and no way forward and no way forward so i'm like okay we have effectively shut down conversation and by the way conversation was shut down after that (laughs) and i'm like okay so now what are we doing here what what are we doing here um and that's why i don't go to things like that a lot to be honest well so my hope would be that because the discourse about discourse is one of the most opaque things that we have. Yep. It's terrible. And 
you know, I, I'm so happy we're having a discourse about the discourse about discourse because you are one of the people that I am in, you know, hopeful, especially with that post that I'm referring to, I hope everybody will go see, um, who may decide, may choose in this moment of openness and what you'll do going forward to integrate all this, to try to make that less opaque, you know, to role model what it looks like when we are acting like zeros and ones and, you know, rights and wrongs and blacks and whites. And, you know, I guess it's an invitation, if not a bold outright request to you to, to, to see whether that fits for you. Yeah. Well, and it does. And that's what I've come to, right. Is that, um, we can go way back on this, but I've been thinking um, about six years ago um, is when I resigned from being an army officer, right? I was no longer in the army. And the reason that's important is I've been thinking that, that at that time, there was a major sense of identity loss. Like, what, who am I now? Now that I'm not this guardian, now that I'm not this, this warrior and this champion anymore, who am I? What do I do? Like, and, and cause I'd all, not that I'd always been that, but I'd been that long enough that it was a core part of my identity. And so it's kind of coming back around, around in a completely different and unexpected way is it is like, well, actually this is how I'm showing up now. Right. And that um, I was telling Angela, my wife about this is like one of my key differences, I think, between the way that I'm approaching this is I'm not approaching this as a black person. I'm approaching this as a soldier, right? Um, because there is something that we are trying to achieve. And that means that the way that I'm involved in that may not be the safest for me, right? It may not be the most comfortable for me. It may not be all about my emotional experience and people protecting me as a part about I am on a mission and what is the best way to achieve that mission, all things considered. There's the way that we would like the world to be, and there's the way that the world is. And um, soldiers and people in the military and, and police officers and things like that, are the, are, they come from a perspective, we come from a perspective of we have to address the way the world is and take it forward and not necessarily be idealistic dreamers about the way we would like the world to be. And... Um, so in a lot of ways, that's, that's what's coming up for me. But I realized that between being multiracial, between having a graduate degree in philosophy and having studied this for 30 years, between being a soldier, between being an entrepreneur, like I'm approaching this with a particular blend of perspectives and skill sets that others don't have. And so I can't expect other people to go into a conversation in the same way that I might. And I'm not trying to say that mine is inherently better. It's just, I am particularly suited to handle the conversation in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm doing. Yeah. Wonderful. Will you say a little bit about this unique mix of experiences that makes you up? Um, you know, if we pull the thread forward in the conversation around polarizing discourse you know there are a lot of pacifists in the world that walk around denying that war exists and you know the machinery of war they walk you know there's no it's very difficult to, it seems to me and I'd be very curious to have you I'm sure you've talked about it before but I'd be curious what you would like to offer here in this moment about 
you know, how this, these two sides, you know, can be bridged. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if we step aside the fact that military force is a vehicle for certain political action, because it is, it's a vehicle for military or for political action. Mm-hmm. If we go to sort of the ethical principles that lie under there, we have to come to grips with the fact that there are millions of people say in Africa that are, um, suffering in ways that we do not understand here in the United States. And we could spend the next four or five decades in soft diplomacy, um, helping people like overcome these scenarios, or we could spend three months of military action and, um, disarm, you know, the, the really, um, really brutal regimes that are, that are, and when I say oppression, there's a difference between say African oppression and American oppression, right? There's a huge difference in quality and, and, and kind here. Right. And so, um, the, the pacifist, I think doesn't, in my experience and granted, I, part of my work as a graduate student was working in just war theories. And so talking about this a lot, right. From my experience, um, the pacifist never has a good answer about the millions of lives that we could otherwise save that we choose not to because we don't want to advance war. Right. And in an ideal world, yes, we wouldn't have to do that, but how many lives do we stack up? Is a billion lives in Africa over the next that many years worth us not going in and doing that now? Granted, that's a long discourse that one might have in this space. But I think what we have to really take in, take take, um, take into consideration is that there are the harms we cause by doing things and that there are harms we cause by not doing things. And when you put them both on the board, there really does need to be serious thought and discourse around why the untold harms that happen because we don't do untold harms because of inaction are somehow better than the, than the known harms of things that from when we do act. Is that really relatively clear, Andrea? It's profoundly helpful, illuminating to really highlight. Um, there's the harm we do by doing things and the harm we do by not doing things. And what's beautiful about that, I think, you leading us to this point in the conversation is that that is uh, one of those statements that applies writ large and down to my every moment of breath as one human being. So lest anyone listening think this is like a big, you know, swath of conversation here that doesn't apply to our daily actions and, you know, creativity, productivity, flourishing, whatever, um, yeah, we're nodding our heads here. We're saying, no, it all, it applies. It, you know, what are you doing today? What are you not doing today? That's what you're saying, right? It applies to every single person. Yeah. And I mean, it goes back to Aristotle's, what lies in our power to do lies in our power not to do. Hmm. Right. And so I, and then, you know, fast forward a couple, you know, a couple of millennia and existentialist philosophers. And I don't talk a lot about this in, in a lot of places, I don't get asked. But anyways, I'm getting asked today. You know, the, that's the thing is that we are held in this moment of choosing. And that's the fundamental aspect of humanity is that we choose the outcomes or we choose the way in which we respond to, to what's going or what's coming at us. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it could be 
dreadfully overwhelming, right? To think of all the untold choices that you're, that, you know, the choices that we're making and the actions that we're not doing. And there are plenty of people that, that wind up crippled in inaction because they think about all of that. And we always have to start somewhere, right? We always have to start somewhere. And whether that, that I think is the tie between sort of a lot of the work on productivity and creativity and strategy is it's super easy to think of all the options one might do and not do and so on and so forth and get nowhere as opposed to say, what do I have now? What am I trying to do? Who are my allies? What problem am I trying to solve? And I'm going to work on that today. And then maybe tomorrow if I haven't solved it and then the next day if I haven't solved it. And um, I, I think that's a weird part about being human is that um, we are just hardwired to solve problems at the same time that we're hardwired to generate them as well. <laughs> it's a weird position to be in. Mm-hmm. Like that serpent eating its tail. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a metaphor that I like to use that you're triggering for me in this moment is like breadcrumbs of success. You know, what's just, what's the small, there's so much, you know, dialogue in the coaching world, especially about ambitious goals. I know you have a whole thing about this too, but I welcome you to jump in. But to me, sometimes when it's so, it can be counterintuitive, but in the face of big societal issues, let's just look for what's today's breadcrumb. Because then it adds up to a crouton at a certain point, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, one crouton in a salad makes a big difference. So <laughs> yeah, one crouton in a salad makes a big difference. That's, that's one of those. <laughs> I, I think that's where we get stuck is because we can have say an epic goal, right? And what we, tr- what we sometimes forget is epic goals are ones that you have to fulfill in time. Like they take a while to build up to. There's nothing wrong with today just having a small success. So I say small success, moderate success, and then epic success, right? There's nothing wrong. And actually, it's quite beautiful and and useful to say, you know what? I'm just going for a small success today. I am just wanting to have one conversation with someone um, that that alters them. I'm just wanting to have a conversation with one of my creative giants that gets her out of whatever knot she's tangled herself into, right, to get her going. That's my goal for the day, right? And it turns out that you can have a lot of small wins, right? And you would leave the day feeling like you've accomplished something as opposed to having that every day I must write 6,000 words or something crazy. Like, I think there's a, there's a place and a time for that, especially early in one's um, new venture where you have a lot of that passion and like you can do a lot of that. But as you realize the untold micro battles that you're going to have to face, and, and overcome, I think there's a better place to say, you know what, I'm just small things, 1% every day, 1% every day. If I could just do 1% and improve things by 1% every day over the course of a year, that's going to make a phenomenal, um, epic change. Um, but I have to have the discipline to focus on the 1%, celebrate the 1% and step away when I'm done with that 1% so that I can live in other ways too. Yeah, this to me sums up the the many stories of awesomeness that I hear, you know, coming out of your work and the community, Charlie, is this, you know, this dedicate, it takes a certain kind of devotion um, that isn't, that is kind of the antithesis of grandiosity um, and has a spiritual component to it, for sure. Thank you for that. 
What would you say to people? So this goes back to language articulation, you know, just stepping out and trying to actively express even the raw parts of you. What, what would you say to people who become the language police? You know, uh, you know, we shouldn't use the language of war. You know, we turn our own souls into battlefields. Um, what, what stock do you give to semantics, meaning and language in this, this mission to help activate people to express themselves? Um, you know, we really do live by the metaphors and language that, that we use. This, it, it proposes the world that we live in. And so metaphors and, and, and language and language sets really are really, really important. But I think we only, I think more often the language police are thinking about the negative constructs and the negative outcomes from using that language and not thinking about the positive constructs of language. For instance, some of the work that I'm doing right now is blending um, some work that I, um, that or some training that I received on military intelligence it's blending um, um, the work from crossing the, the, the chasm and it's blending the work from Eugene Swartz customer awareness models, right? Mm. Right. Um, and talking about how to have tough conversations with people depending upon how hostile they are to your message in the first place, right? Mm. And so it's blending different things like that. Now, we could, the language police could disqualify any one of those as like, you can't use this military, this militaristic. Um, intelligence officer perspective. I mean, you can't use these business constructs because we're talking about this other thing. And, and what about the oppression that happens from capitalism and, and, and thinking in terms of people as customers? And, you know, the whole thing about it is, is if the language police keep us from talking, they have jailed us all. Um, and that's the frustrating thing. And, and there's a way in which we use language that is divisive and destructive. And intentionally so. And there are ways that we use language that can be divisive and, and, and destructive unintentionally. Um, and I'm all for having conversations when we have um, unintentional uses of language that, that maybe we can modify um, so that they're not destructive and divisive. But at a certain point, like when, when no one feels like they can say anything or when a significant number of the population um, feels like they can't say anything, then, then we have a problem. And what I've been thinking about, and this is how, this is a rough thing to say is that, um, it reminds me of, um, what happens when people who have never had power are given power and that they abuse the power, but they don't know it. They don't know that they're then abusing the power. And so in some ways I kind of feel like the language police, largely may have been in a position where they did not have power before, but then they can control the conversations and the way that the conversations are have they're having, and they've just replaced who's in power. Like we, we've just done the, the, the power swap that we see so often happen in revolutions. Like nice. it's like, boom, this person now has the power to control what we talk about. Are we really better off? No, I would say no. In, in, in fact, because the piercing clarity of this moment of, you know, what you're saying is instead of language police, it's like language, like there's a, there's a switch possible because if, if people in power who are abusing power, abusers or perpetrators of any kind are trapped in the language of their own story, then an opening, and, and again, this points to discourse, is, uh, you know, to 
create new language bridges and offerings um, so that they can see their way out. Those can be keys. Those could be keys. And I think, I mean, when we step aside from language, when we step aside from, I mean, what am I trying to say here? When we are in conversations with people we love and our friends and everything like that, we assume that they are coming to the table with a certain level of um, love and generosity and goodwill that will allow them to say things, right, that, that we might not otherwise, otherwise allow other people to say, right? Because we know their heart. We know where they're coming from, right? We're trying to be in positive interdependence with them. But unfortunately, I, I think that the language police are creating one of those triads, you know, the victim, persecutor, and the bystander, uh, and the bystander, right? They're creating the very triad is that they're placing themselves in a place where it's like, oh, I'm going to um, shield the victim and per- persecute other people using a certain language. And it's like, but yes, what are you pulling to the table then? Right. Um, so that, that's just what I have to say, say about that. I, I think any time that genuinely curious, open and loving um, people are not allowed to, to really express themselves because of linguistic constructs, we really have to look not at the people and what they're saying, but about the constructs themselves yeah. and say, maybe there's another way here. Maybe we can have five minutes where we get to say whatever we want to say with no judgments, like, and see what happens, right, mm-hmm. from that conversation rather than just the appalling silence. Can you, are you able to pull on an example or two of just that? Like, have you seen examples of that being done or perhaps, you know, you have facilitated something like that? Um, I, I don't, let me put it this way. I haven't done it in a public venue. Um, I've done it in, I've done it um, informally with friends when, when we've had conversations about this. So rather than it being, um, rather than it being um, so guarded about language, I'll crack a joke, right, about something. And I'll use one of the various stereotypes that they're trying to dance around and we'll laugh and fun. And then that opens up the conversation. Right. So the humor and the levity, right? Um, so on and so forth. Now, granted, in small groups, you can control the context. Right. Which is really, really important. Um, But I think that's where we can look at is if you're in a position to where you're. And so this is for coaches. This is for speakers. This is for consultants. This is for all leaders. um, This is for anyone that's in that position where you are in a de facto sense of influence or power. Yeah. Um, In those circumstances, you have a lot of responsibility for stewarding that conversation. And so the more that you lower your own power base, the, the, sooner, that, the sooner that you can crack a joke or, or point to something like that and have it be one of those um, timely, not insensitive jokes, right? The more that you're going to open up and foster a place where true tough conversations can happen, where true conversations where people are not only challenged, but they're also healed. Um, and so that's what I would want um, leaders and, and people in, the, in those positions to be thinking about, right? How can they um, open up the conversations um, by, it, it's kind of like, it reminds me of, um, it's in Buddhism in a lot of ways, because one of the thing, one of the aspects of Zen Buddhism that a lot of people don't get is they'll, they'll ask crazy koans like, you know, what's the sound of one hand clapping, right? And 
sounds really fun. And you're like, well, I don't get it. But what it's doing is pointing to the language and your thoughts itself, right? It's making a meta point about um, reality or about language that you don't get at the beginning because you come to it so literally. Um, and so anytime that you can point to the absurdity um, of the either the situation um, or the, the ways in which you, the, the relationships have de- been defined, the, the better off you're going to be able to do. Mm-hmm. Including the relationship with yourself and your own foibles. And, you know, that's great. Let me get kind of practical with you here in a couple of maybe final questions. When, when we're talking within our, you know, close friends and family or community, you know, there's a way in which there's an established safety that allows for conversation to be had, risks to be taken and so on. How would you say, because I know you're, at least some of you must be, I know, occupied with the idea of how do you engage with people who are not within this warm circle? What are your thoughts about that if you can be practical around it? Because I think a lot of us who read you and follow you and, you know, want to walk shoulder to shoulder with you in this going forward from here um, are asking this question, how do we expand? these great ideas. How do we go there, Charlie? Yeah. How do we go there? That's, you know, that's kind of why I've been thinking about that model of how hostile the person is to your message. Because um, I think we always had, no, I won't say we all, but I'm going to tell the story of the bigoted uncle at Thanksgiving table, right? (laughs) Whatever it is, right? Whatever, whatever opinion or politics you have, He's got the opposite and he drives you crazy. Yeah. But the uncle, right? What do you do about the uncle? (laughs) Right. Um, And I, you know, I don't have a lot of really good answers for the uncle, except for realizing that um, one, it might not be your problem to fix the uncle, right? You might not be in a place to where you, you might be too tender and too sensitive to go head to head with the uncle. Right. And in that case, it's probably best not to engage with the uncle because um, it turns out that you'll end up using violent communication with the uncle and undermining your own position. And then you walk away. And so when in, in a situation like that, you know, you have, I'm, I'm thinking of a spectrum of people, Andrea. So <laughs> on one spectrum, you have hostels, right? That are just hostile to your message. Um, you have borderline hostels, right? They're not quite hostile, but they're on that borderline. You have would-be allies, you have allies, and you have yourself, right? Still working it out, but some, um, but really what we're looking at is how do you, how do we engage with the would-be allies? Because I think there's a, there's a big population of would-be allies that, that can be brought into the flow through, through education, through sharing of experiences, through giving, um, through making it welcoming for them to ask questions, so on and so forth. So a lot of my work right now is actually going for would-be allies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but there's this sort of borderline hostels that if you um, go into that sort of violent emotional vomiting at the hostel, you that borderline hostel creeps a little bit more towards the hostel side, right? Nice. And so, you know, that's where you really have to kind of see where they are in this conversation because the borderline hostel, number one, you're not going to want to engage them in like a full public conversation because they're going to clam up on you and they're going to turtle up and sort of not turtle up. That's the wrong one. They're going to hedgehog up on you, right? You're going to yeah. get all the prickly bits. <laughs> right? um, that's more of a one-on-one conversation that you might have with them, you know, just seeing where they're coming from. Um, and I think that's where so much of the work should be is with those borderline hostels or would be hostels and would be allies. Right. 
because we can affect a lot of change. But people who are just on that end of dripping hatred, right? And mm-hmm. in the next couple of days, I'll share a post which just looks at the comments that were on a particular post that I was reading. I was like, this, the, this is what people are thinking and saying. Like, we, we, we like to hand wave that there are hateful people out there. Mm-hmm. It, these are their words, right? There's not much you can do to change that person, right? The best person that can change that person would be a former would-be hostile. Yes. Right? Um, because they're able to engage and, like, and, say, and, and do that type of whatnot, right? That, I, I think there are those cathartic moments of transformation that people have where just something flips in them and they see things from a different perspective. Um, I'm not saying, I, I'm not at this point where I'm comfortable saying like we should spend a lot of time working with, with hostels in that way, as opposed to really doing the work in the middle, because at a certain point, um, this sounds crazy, Andrew, but at a certain point they'll lose just, just due to breeding, just due to the fact that everyone around them, um, thinks and believes a certain way and they, they won't be able to contribute to the systemic racism and oppression and identity, um, discrimination and so on and so forth. Cause there's just not enough of them. Yeah. Like if you buy a bag of avocados and you know, some of them are rock hard, impenetrable avocados. And then there are the ones in the middle, like which ones are you going to keep your eye on? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think that's actually very, very useful for everyone who's listening. I think you're, you're saying something that will help people, um, yeah, sort where to focus and save a lot of energy in certain circumstances, whether it's a personal uncle or it's a work related uncle to do with your brand or your business. Um, yeah. Former would be allies. I mean, one thing that you made me think is I mean, you're a former would be ally because of your, your many different backgrounds. I think you're more types of former allies such that that makes you the bridge that you are and it's such just a different slice of it like I identify with it as well I definitely have a uh, like an ally with a group that ordinarily many people wouldn't have credibility with mm-hmm. and those are you know places where we can uh, th- those are the tips of the spears you know um, this leads me to my second practical question um, you do a lot of things with other people I've noticed. And it, I, there's a, there's a little phrase. I don't think it's a quote that to attribute to anyone, but it, I certainly didn't originate it. It's, um, anything worth doing is worth doing in community. Mm-hmm. And my question to you as somebody who has done lots of things in partnership and, you know, you seem to me to have a come from that is flavored by that. What, what makes you start a partnership? What makes you stop? Um, my, my hope is that by listening to you, you open this up and that people will start to think about how to gather, um, you know, or lean into gathering rather than, you know, isolating in these moments of trying to express parts of ourselves that are unclear yet. Yeah. So, um, part of it is just knowing myself really well and knowing that I, there are moments in which I'm a great individual performer, but mostly I thrive best in teams and, and collective partnerships, right? Um, so 
it, it's to put it crassly, you wouldn't take an army captain and put him out in the middle of the field to do anything by himself, right? He's always going to have other people around him, so on and so forth. And so that's part of just knowing myself well enough. And um, I'm not, I'm not as productive. I'm not as happy. The other thing about it is I, I love, love, love working with other people. I love seeing the, um, the harmony that happens in co-creation that, that won't happen in the melody of doing it by yourself. Right. Um, and it's also one of those things to where it makes you practice um, humility in a, in a very important way, because I think so many people avoid partnerships, especially um, at, you know, that earlier stage before it becomes a formal sort of business partnership. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we avoid it because we, there's so much of our ego attached into like, this is my idea. This is my project. This is my thing as opposed to this is a thing that, that needs to be out there in the world or so on and so forth. Right. And, um, and I think there's a certain point where when you really realize that all human problems are solvable, and you recognize that, like, if you pick people that you resonate with, that you um, love hanging out with, that you truly believe are good people, whatever stuff you'll come up with, you'll be able to figure it out, right? Um, I think it's only when we confine ourselves to, um, well, hmm. let me pause. I now know to expect rocky parts of a relationship. Right. So you could look at the sort of the Tuckman forming, storming, norming, performing model. I now know with any creative partnership, I'm going to have some storming stages. Right. I don't try to elicit them and pull them out. But I think when you know that sort of the discomfort that can come from creative partnerships, like you just expect like, oh, we're at this place. Oh, cool. That doesn't mean we're doing anything wrong. How do we, how do we want to move forward with this? Um, it, it, for me, it's actually quite liberating because you can remain curious in that relationship and it doesn't make anything that happens about, say, Andrea or Charlie. It's just what it means to be in human and what it means to be in community. I might even go so far as to, you know, extrapolate because I think it is profound to expect the storming part of a relationship when it's one-on-one writ large is to expect the storming part of a relationship with societal issues. Storming part of a relationship of Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter. Storming part of a relationship around, you know, violence in the world. That's very meaningful. To be fearless in the face of misunderstanding and knowing that that's, there's nothing happening that's, quote, out of order. Yeah. I mean, so threading that needle, there's, I mean, beheadings and mass starvations and genocides, right? Those are things that, that, that that's different than just the normal storming that happens. Right. And mm-hmm. so we, we need to take action on those types of things. We've discussed that earlier, but there's a broad realm of, of, of misunderstandings. And the question is, how do we stay at the table of progress? How do we stay here? Because you know, a few hundred years ago, three quarters of the world um, lived in slavery. They were slaves, right? Three quarters of the world's population were slaves. Um, women were not allowed to vote. Largely speaking, people of color were not allowed to vote. There were no democracies, right? Um, 
um, rape and pillage during warfare was the norm. Like we can go back to all of these atrocities in human history, right? And we don't live there anymore. Um, we expect human beings to be more involved and that's a beautiful thing. And that means we have to spend more time at the table because the atrocities and the horrible things that have happened in the past that would get any more person, any conscious of a more person at the table. Um, those, those don't exist anymore. So we have these borderline cases in, or what seems to be borderline cases in our own nation of how do we handle um, that, you know, 10 to 15% of, of cops are not serving their communities, but 85% are. That's a fundamentally different issue than, say, like a revolt from slavery issue. So, yes, we can expect that in all these issues, there's going to be a new storming phase. There's going to be a new sort of way that we have to figure it out. But um, how do we stay at the table? That's the question. Yeah, this has been a really hopeful, you know, conversation about difficult things and you know, you said it in another place, I mean, your many writings and, you know, it's the safest time in history. It doesn't feel like it sometimes, but this is the safest time in history. And since this is a, a beautiful time, maybe to pause and just ask if there, you know, is anything in wrapping up that you feel like is something you would like to leave with our listeners? Whether it's a social issue or whether it's a creative yearning, or whether it's your closet that you know you need to clean up. Um, stay engaged with it, right? Don't hide from it. Um, because there's power in human persistence. There's power in human ingenuity. And there's power in human imagination. And none of those things come to forefront when we just hide from those things um, that, that are uncomfortable. I, on behalf of our listeners, am throwing the wild rose petals of appreciation for your leadership and your, you know, being who you are, which we know you can't help. So, you know, take that credit, credit with the humility. I know you will. But, um, yeah, for speaking up and making it known that um, that is what you're here to do regardless and showing us um, what it can look like if we're all brave, um, just one, one day at a time. Um, thank you for this great time and the, the joy of digging into these things with you, Charlie. Andrea, again, thanks for the time. And I'm, I'm glad we've, we pulled out stuff that I don't know that I would have shared otherwise. So thank you. You are welcome. Thanks for listening to the creative giant show to find more tools and inspiration for creative giants head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.